find it on page 1180 if you're using the church Bibles. At this time, a lot of competitors have confidence in their bodies at the Olympics. Paul encourages us to have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that you are the awesome and great God who gave everything up for us. Thank you for this journey uh, we've been on in Philippians where we've seen this clearly that you are the God who had everything and yet gave that up, died on a cross, rose again and now sits as king and we thank you for what we have in Jesus. We pray this morning that you would encourage us and challenge us and stir us to see how good this is, how good we've got it in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I don't know what um, you've got in your house that's the most valuable kind of thing that you've got. Maybe you bought it at an op shop. Maybe it's something that's been handed down to you from generation to generation. Maybe it's just something sentimental. But for me, in my house, the most valuable item that I've got is this thing, right? It's the uh, Sydney Olympic pins, right? And what, what happened was, so back in 2000, which I know is before a lot of you guys were born, so that should increase the value of it. Uh, back in 2000, uh, the Olympics were in Australia, believe it or not. And what happened, if my memory serves me correctly, is that uh, the Courier Mail put out this thing where you could buy these little pins following the torch around Australia. Anyway, my nan, being the great nan that she is, decided that for myself and my brothers, she would buy us these kind of sets of pins. And when the Olympics started, she gave it to us. Now, as an eight-year-old boy, you know, didn't really see the value of pins, and so put them on my shelf because I didn't actually know what else to do with them, kind of forgot about them. That was until after the Olympics when we went to some markets, and I saw at some marketplace, uh, these guys were selling these pins for 40 bucks. 
Now, you've got to realize that was a lot of money back in 2000, and it's a lot of money to an eight-year-old. And I was thinking as an eight-year-old, if this is how much these things are worth now, imagine what they'll be worth in 16 years. Right? If these are 40 bucks now, imagine what they'll be worth in 16 years. And so I decided, man, I'm going to protect these things. I'm going to sell these things in 2016, get a car, go on a holiday, do something with them. As a good younger brother, stole my older brother's sets of pins, so I had two sets now. Anyway, this week I remembered that I had these things, wanted to check out how much they were worth. Anyway, this is what eBay says. 25 bucks. For two sets of pins, I can get 50 bucks. So forget the car or the holiday, I can barely fill up the car that I have with that much. So this week I came crashing down to earth, realizing my most valuable item wasn't that valuable at all. And the thing, the worst part about it is like I lugged these things around from move to move, from house to house, told my housemates not to touch them, tell my wife not to throw them out, and then all that they're worth is 50 bucks. But see, it's a good thing when you realize what the true value of something is. It's a good thing because when we think something's valuable, we kind of act a little bit differently. We protect those things. We, we, we look after those things. I don't know what it is in your house. Maybe it's the antique teaspoon set that the kids can't make make Milo with. If they do, there'll be big trouble. Maybe it's the couch that you still have the plastic on. I don't know what it is in your house, right? But when something's valuable, we kind of act a little bit differently to it. We protect it. We look after it. Now, as we've been going in this series, uh, we've been looking at the fact that we are a part of something greater. But the question we're asking today is if we are a part of something greater, so, so if this truly is something greater, what do we actually have that's greater? Right? What do we actually have that's greater? Because if what we've got is not valuable, then it shouldn't change us, it shouldn't affect us. But if what we have is valuable, if, if what we have is worth a lot, then it should actually change us. It should affect us. And so that's the question we're asking. What do we have that's valuable? And so if you've got your Bibles there today, have them open. Because Paul shows us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord... It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. What's the first thing we have? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. The first thing that we have a part of something greater is joy, joy in the Lord. Now, this is a big deal, right? This is really important. And the reason is, is because all throughout Philippians, Paul speaks about joy. It's never the main point, right? It's never the thing that he goes at length about, but it's all throughout this book. And the reason being is that joy is important. For Christians, joy is so important. In fact, it's kind of the thing that holds everything together, right? So it's kind of like the staples in a book. So I've got one of our study books here. They're beautiful if you don't have one yet, uh, folded perfectly. Anyway, we, we get these booklets uh, done each series. But you know what happens? We don't look at these booklets at the start of the term and go, okay, we've got two staples. Let's find something to, you know, use those staples with. You know, like that's not how it works. You, you do a booklet and then you staple it and the staples are what keeps the whole thing together, right? It's not like it's not crazy. It's just the staples are what keeps it all together. And if I was to pull the staples out of this book, I won't do it. But if I was, right, eventually it'd fall apart. You know, like the fold would hold it for a little bit, but eventually the pages would fall out and everything would fall apart. Joy is kind of like the staples in a book. It's what keeps everything together. It's what keeps our faith together. Joy is so important. Joy really matters because when we think about who God is and what God has done, there is actually a pretty big element there where it needs to bring us joy. Right? When we think about who God is and what God has done, that should give us joy. Now, I'm not talking about happiness. 
Right? We've talked about that before here at Southside, but I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness is different. Happiness comes and goes depending on who won the footy last night, depending on how you woke up, depending on how the kids slept, depending on what mood, what side of the bed you get up. Happiness comes and goes, but joy goes deeper than that. And as Christians, we have a joy. We have a joy in Christ, a joy in who God is, a joy in what God's done. So joy is what causes persecuted Christians who suffer day in, day out, who, are, who could face death any day. Joy is what causes them to celebrate that Jesus has died on the cross for them. Joy is what gets them excited about who God is and what God's done. Joy is what causes you, when you get two to six months to live, to celebrate that Jesus is calling you home. You see what I mean? Joy goes deeper than happiness. Joy goes deeper than circumstances. And so Paul says the first thing that we've got in Christ is joy. And so the question for us is, do we have this joy in who God is and what God has done? Because if when we think about who God is and what God has done, joy isn't in our heart, there's actually something missing there. There's actually a problem there. You see what I mean? That the, the Christians, when we don't feel joy in who God is and what God's done, we don't just stick our head in the sand and hope that it'll be okay. So, so if this morning, if as you're thinking about joy in Christ, if you say, this is not a mark of who I am, it's not a mark of my journey in Christ, there is actually something we need to do there. Right? If you're feeling bitter and burnt out and broken, and when you think about Christ, nothing but sadness comes to your heart, then there is actually a problem. You need to stop and reevaluate. And, and actually, as Christians, we need to get help if joy isn't there. And whether that's a, a counsellor, whether that's coming to our elders and asking prayer, whether that's just talking about it this week in your growth group, joy should be there when we think about who God is and what God's done, right? Because Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And we see this all throughout Paul's life, right? We see it all throughout Paul's life that joy goes deeper than his circumstances. So if we think about it, in chapter 1, he's in jail and yet he's praying with joy for these people. He, he says, if you remember from chapter 1, he says, uh, from kind of verse 12 on, people are preaching Christ just to get at him. But what does he say in verse 18? He says, but still I rejoice. Chapter 2, 17 to 18, he says, even if I'm to die for your faith, I rejoice. And you too should rejoice. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is important, right? Joy matters. It's something that we should have in Christ. And if you don't have it, there is actually a problem. We don't just stick our heads in the sand. We need to stop and think and reevaluate it and, and f try and find help, right? Because this is what we should have. When we think about who God is and what God's done, the first thing we have is actually joy, something that goes deeper than our circumstances. What's the second thing that we have in Christ? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by the, uh, worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Again, he says it, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. So what's the second thing that we've got a part of something greater? The second thing that we've got a part of something greater is that we are accepted, not by works, but by faith. This is, a, a, this is really important. We are accepted not by what we do, but by faith. And this should be an encouragement and a challenge to all of us. See, the way Paul starts there is he says, watch out for those dogs. And we've got to know what Paul's talking about because in our day and age, dog literally means anything, right? So at youth group, if a boy doesn't turn up, he is dogging the boys, right? If uh, someone does something to you, then you can call them rightfully a dog, right? If they take something that's yours, sometimes dog can be a good thing, right? When someone says, yeah, dog, I guess if that's your language, then that can be a good thing. There is the rare occasion when you actually call a dog a dog, right? And so what's Paul doing here when he says, watch out for those dogs? When he says, those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, obviously he's not just saying, watch out for the stray dogs, right? Make sure you don't get bitten on the street. He's talking about something else. So what's he doing? Well, he's speaking to a culture where Judaism was pretty... They knew what was happening in Judaism. And, and the Jews, what the Jews did, so in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people, right? And what they used to do is they would call Gentiles, so everyone who's not a Jew, right? That's basically a Gentile. So I'm a Gentile. Essentially, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs, right? They would call them dogs to kind of insinuate you are outside, you are stray, you are filthy, you are not God's people, you are outside of God's people. And so Paul here is flipping that on its head and he's applying this term to Jews and he's saying, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He says, watch out for them. Watch out for them. But the word is actually more than just watch out for them. It's kind of consider them, right? Learn from them. Why? Because we actually have a lot to learn from the Jews, right? Because if we think about it, the Jews were God's people. Right? They were God's people. If you read the Old Testament, we see this again and again. The Jews were God's people. Saved by grace, mercy. God was, God was gracious to them, merciful to them. Saved them despite them not deserving them. And over and over again, despite their rebellion, God continued to love them. Right? They were God's people. But when Jesus came about and when Paul's living, the Jews were trying so hard to learn from the mistakes of the past that they were working tirelessly to do the right thing and the right rituals. But it wasn't coming from the right heart. Right? So they were working so hard to do the right thing and the right rituals, but it wasn't coming from the right heart. They just didn't get it. They didn't get that that was meant to be a response to God, like we talked about last week. They were doing it to get God. Right? Their focus was on the flesh. And so Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. He says they're like the pagans right? who would go to the temple, would cut themselves up, would, would, would do that to appease and please the God. He's saying this about the Jews. He's saying they would cut off pieces of skin, but that's merely mutilating the flesh. It doesn't mean anything. Right? And so Paul's saying here, learn from them. Right? Consider them. Think about them. And, and what we need to learn from them is that they put too much focus on the flesh which isn't what we do now as God's people, right? And this is what he says. He says, for, we who, for it is we who are the circumcision in verse 3. And that's not anything weird. It's just saying we are God's people, 
We who worship by the Spirit of God. So he's saying we who worship first internally, right? We are Christians first within before we're anything outside of us. We worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus, but the word is boast in Christ Jesus and we who put no confidence in the flesh, right? We are not accepted by who we are or what we do. We are accepted by something else. Paul says we put no confidence in the flesh. And to show us exactly what this means, he goes to lengths to show us the weight of what he's saying. Because he says, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then Paul tells us who he is and what he's done, right? Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, which has to be a good thing, right? It has to, but, well, it is actually a good thing, but not simply because of its name, because Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was one of two tribes in the Old Testament that kind of didn't lose the plot completely. So he's saying he's of good stock, right? He's got good blood. But then he says, not just who I am, what I did, he's a, uh, in regard to the law, he nailed it, grew up in Jewish school, nailed his exams, right? Got the top of the grade in Jewish school, became a teacher, right? Was so passionate, so zealous that he protected what he had because he thought that was valuable. In fact, he killed people to protect what he had. And then if you had to mark him on his life because of what he was doing, he says, I'd be faultless, right? A hundred percent. He would nail that exam, right? This is who Paul says he is and what he's done, right? His flesh, kind of, this is what he's doing in the body. This is what his actions say. But Paul says, all of this all of who I am and all of what I've done, I count as loss. In fact, the word he uses there is rubbish. He counts it as rubbish. But this isn't kind of the rubbish next to your bin at work. You know where you scrunch up paper and chuck it in the bin? Essentially, that could stay there forever, right, if, that's, if that doesn't get filled up. Paul's not talking about that rubbish. He's talking about the dry-reaching kind of rubbish. You know what I'm talking about there? He's talking about the dry-reaching rubbish that even in the bin you've got to move out. You're waiting till bin day so that you can clean your bin. That kind of rubbish, right? The kind of language here is kind of poo on the bathroom floor. And if you've ever had to clean that up, you know how gross that is. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying who I am and what I've done counts as that, right? Can you feel the weight of what he's saying there? That is a big deal, what he's saying, who I am and what I've done, even though that's all of my achievements, that's everything I've ever done, counts as rubbish, counts as dry-reaching, disgusting rubbish. To, to kind of today's version of this would be essentially if you were... So I know that some of us are um, trying to get jobs. We've been in a lot of job interviews lately. And part of that process is you've got to fill out a resume. And some of us are great at filling out resumes. Like we make ourselves sound so good, way better than we even are. And we're great at resumes. Some of us are not that good, like me in grade nine, where you put your interests to just soccer and computer games and wonder why you never get a job. But imagine for a second that you were good at writing a resume and you make yourself sound so good, right? Like you everything you've ever done, every achievement you've ever done from the stuff that no one's ever seen, you know, to the, the big stuff, all the fruit. You, you talk about who you are. You talk about why that matters, you know, how your parents brought you up and why that matters. You talk about how you're a team, a team player. You put everything that you've ever are, everything that you ever, you've ever done, even certain things you haven't done, and this is your resume, and you're going to apply for a job. But it's not, you know, it's not a high-end job. It's the Woolies. It's got, you're going to Woolies, maybe in the deli, which I can tell you, from personal experience, isn't a high-end job, right? And, and so this is the job you're applying to. You're way overqualified, 
but your resume you know, kind of says that doesn't matter because you're happy with a base wage and you work as a team and you're not going you know, to do anything, you overplay your hand. Anyway, as you go to get this job, your resume is in front of you, which is essentially who you are and what you've done, right? It's everything that you are. And as the boss grabs you, he just starts dry reaching, right? just starts wanting to vomit and then just goes everywhere, chucks it in the bin with the rotten chicken and the, the baby's nappy that some 14-year-old took because he didn't know what else to do with it. Right? That's what he does with who you are and what you've done. I don't know if you could actually imagine that, but that would be kind of... That'd be heartbreaking. Like, this is everything that I ever, this is all that I am, this is all that I've done, and yet it counts as rubbish. But that's what Paul's saying. And Paul did way more than I've ever done. Paul was of way better stock than I am, and he's saying, yet this counts as rubbish. This counts as filthy, disgusting rubbish. All that I am and all that I've done. So why is Paul doing this? Why is he saying this to us? The reason he's saying it to us is because Paul is showing us that we are not accepted by what we do. We are not accepted by who we are. We are accepted by something else. right? And we have to feel the weight of that. So if you came here this morning and think God looks upon you like you're great because of who you are and what you've done, Paul's telling you something different. right? We are not accepted by what we do. We're not accepted by who we are. So what are we accepted by? Well, Paul said it in verse 9. He said, being found in him, not having a righteousness in my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then he says it again, the righteousness that comes from God is by faith. We aren't accepted by what we do. We're accepted by faith, faith in Christ, right? And to show the weight of what he's talking about here, Paul uses the language of righteousness. Now, righteousness is the idea that we are declared innocent. Right? That's what the idea is, that we are declared innocent. And God simply can't declare us as innocent because we aren't. Right? He can't simply declare us as not guilty if we're guilty. And we're all guilty. Right? I'm guilty of offending God. I have rejected and rebelled against him over and over again. I've done bad stuff that he said, don't do this. And yet I've done it blatantly knowing that. But even sometimes not knowing that, I've done bad stuff. And then at the same time, even if I don't think I'm that bad, I haven't done good stuff perfectly all the time. I'm not perfect. And so I've offended God. I am guilty of that. And I deserve destruction, which is the language Paul uses in Philippians over and over again. This is what I deserve. I'm guilty. And God can't simply look on me and say, you're innocent, because he's a just and a holy and a perfect God. He can't just do that. So what hope do we have of being declared innocent? Well, Paul says it's not from the flesh, right? And this should make sense to us. If a murderer murders someone, it doesn't matter how many times he helps an old lady across the road, it will never make up for what he's done. Right? And he has to pay for his crime. It's the same with me. I'm guilty of sinning against God. And no matter how much good stuff I've done, nothing can cover that. Nothing can take that away. I'm still guilty. So what hope do I have? Paul says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The only hope that I have of being declared innocent is actually realizing that I am sinful and broken and I can't fix or save myself and I run to the foot of the cross, right? The the only hope that I have is when I have faith in Christ, which is this kind of helplessness, right? It's when I realize that I can't fix myself and I need someone else. And this was my story. 
right? Like I, I grew up in a Christian home and um, it took me 18 years to kind of realize that my lifestyle didn't match up to what I said I, I believed. One of the great dangers of when you grow up in a Christian home is when you just think you're a Christian, but then your lifestyle doesn't match up to what you believe. And it took me two things to realize the gospel. The first thing God showed me was that I was sinful, which is outrageous, because if you looked at my life, you could have told me that. In fact, people told me that, but I just didn't realize it. And, and so I realized that I was sinful. But the second thing that I realized was that, that God showed me was that I couldn't save myself. Right, and if you're interested, it's from John 3 where it's about being born again and, and Nicodemus goes, but it's impossible for us. And, and Jesus kind of goes, yeah, that's the point. You can't do it. Right? You can't save yourself. And so I realized that I was sinful and broken and that I couldn't save myself. I was broken and I couldn't put the pieces of my life back together. Now, now that kind of sounds like it's a depressing place to be. But actually, it's the only place to be where we can rightfully turn to Christ. It's only when we realize that I am deeply broken and that I can't fix myself that we run to Christ and we put our faith in Christ because we realize we need someone else to fix us. We need someone else. And so when we come to Christ, we put our trust in Christ, put our faith in his death and resurrection, then in him we get declared innocent. And what happens is it's what's called the great exchange, right? So he takes my status of guilty and he gives me his status of innocent. So he doesn't just pretend that the guiltiness never existed. He takes my status of guilty. He pays for it at the cross. He dies. He rises again. He ascends. He sits as king and he gives me his status of innocent of righteous, right? So I am not accepted by the God of the universe by works because works won't save me. I can't do it. I'm accepted by the God of the universe through faith, faith in Christ. So, so I don't know how you got here today. Like there's some faces that I don't know, some that I do, but I don't even know, I don't know your story. I don't know the secrets that you've got. I don't know the things you've done. I don't know where you were from and what your story is and what you've done. But this morning, if you want to be accepted by the God of the universe, it doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter who you are. Because being accepted by the God of the universe comes through faith in Christ. And so this morning, for some of us, God is actually pressing on our heart to come to him. Jesus loves you. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you that status of innocence. But you've got to come. You've got to trust in him. We are saved by faith in Christ, a helplessness at the foot of the cross. And so we come to Christ and he takes our status of guilty and he gives me his status of innocent. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we come to Christ, we don't just get freed from destruction. We don't just get saved from that. We actually get more than that. We get Christ himself. We get Jesus. And that's the third thing that we've got as Christians. We get Jesus. So I don't know the last time that you watched um, Antiques Roadshow. Probably wasn't that long ago knowing you. Um, but but um, I don't know when you, the last time you watched it. But the same thing happens every time, right, uh, on Antiques Roadshow. You know the story. Some guy comes with let's say teacups and he got given those teacups from his auntie and she actually somehow got them from the queen and um, they're there and, and so you sit down and you watch it and the guy kind of tells you the backstory of the teacups 
You know, he's like, oh, yeah, the queen did actually drink from these 20 years ago. And actually, I bet you didn't know that they were made in the caves of Egypt. And so you're like, you know, you're wondering how much they've got to be worth something. And so the tension rises and you're just wondering when they get to that point where they tell you the value of these things. But, you know, obviously with TV shows, it goes to ads, the tension's building. You don't go to the toilet because you want to know what's going on with these teacups. Anyway, he comes back and, and the first one he picks up and goes, yeah, the problem with this one is they're just too common. Everyone's got these. So you'd be lucky if you got 10 bucks for this. And so he kind of throws it away. He doesn't care about it anymore. The second one he picks up and he goes, look, this one would be worth more, but it's got tea stains in it. And we all know no one wants to drink a tea out of a cup with tea stains. So the value's gone out of this one. The queen obviously didn't wash up after she drank out of it. And so this one, 20 bucks. Right, but then he picks up the third one. The crowd gathers in. The music turns on. Everyone's getting attention. You're holding your kids' hands. Everyone's watching. Right, picks up the third piece of the, the teacup and goes, this one, this is the one. This one's worth $2,000. The crowd goes wild. You pick up your kids. You celebrate. Maybe Antiques Roadshow is a bit different in your house than it is in mine. But, but the last one, this is the one of, of, of more value. And so the guy sees that this one's worth $2,000. So he grabs it, he hides it, he protects it. Right? And as he walks away, he's like watching everyone, making sure no one gets a hold of this because he knows this thing's worth money. This thing's valuable. As we get to the end of this passage, what we kind of see, the crescendo, what, what really matters, what's the most valuable thing that Paul's getting at, that we have a part of something greater, is actually Jesus himself. Right, the thing that, that's most valuable to us now is Jesus himself. So I don't know if you caught it, but Paul says, I count everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He says, I count everything loss so that I may gain Christ. You see how much he values Christ? And then he says in verse 10, he says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Christ, right? Jesus for Paul is the point. Everything's about Jesus. And so he says, I want to know him. I want to know Christ. And not as kind of a, a historical figure, right? He, he's not just a great historian, Paul. He wants to know the living Lord Jesus. And so he says this, he says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, which could really be in the power of his resurrection. He's saying, I want to know the living Lord Jesus. Right? I don't just want to know the dead guy. I don't just want to know the dead kind of histor historical figure. He says, I want to know the living one who rose from the dead. Then he says, I want to share in the, the, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And what he's saying there is that he wants to know the Christ who suffered for him. Right, and the picture of becoming like him in his death throughout the New Testament, it's, it's kind of what we see in baptism sometimes, when, when we, we too have died with Christ and come alive in him. We have died to ourselves and come alive to Christ. And so Paul's saying here, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the living Jesus who suffered and died for me. Why? So verse 11, he can somehow attain the resurrection of the dead. So somehow he will see Jesus face to face. Right, for Paul, Jesus is what matters. For Paul, Jesus is everything. He says everything is lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And so the third thing that we've got, a part of something greater, is Christ himself. We have to see this. We have to see Jesus is the point. Jesus is the gospel. The good news is that we get God. right? That is the good news of the gospel, that we actually get to have a relationship with the living God who loves you and cares about you and wants you. 
right? The God of the universe. And so the question for us here, as we, as we come to the end, the question for us is, do we value Christ more than anything else? Could we say, I count everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Could we say, I want to know Christ, not just the historical figure, but the living Lord Jesus who suffered and died for me? Do we see the value of Christ? Because we have to see the value of Christ. We have to see he's infinitely more valuable than we can even see. And so the question is, do we value Christ? And how can we tell if we really value Christ? How can we tell? One of the best ways I think that I've come across this challenge is from a book called God is the Gospel. It's a book by John Piper and basically it's explaining what's in chapter 3. And in God is the Gospel, he says that like God is the point of the Gospel. We actually get to have a relationship with God. We, we get Jesus himself. And so this is the thing. He, he, he asks us a question to figure out if we really value Christ more than anything. And this is what he says. This is the quote. It will be on the screen. The, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw or the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. If heaven is just everything good and nothing bad, would you take it? Would you take that? Because Paul says I wouldn't. Paul says I count everything as a loss for the sake of Christ. He says I don't want anything except Christ. He says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is to die gain? Because I get to be with Christ. Paul wouldn't take that. And, and so the challenge for us here this morning is do we value Christ as much as Paul? Do we value Christ as much as he really is, as infinitely valuable, the one who loves us and cares for us, who suffered and died for us? And then the question is, what if we don't? Because I realize that as I read Paul's words in chapter 3, that I don't value Christ as much as I should. As I read Paul's words where he says, I count everything as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ, I realize that for me, that's not where I'm at. But on top of that, when Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, I have to wrestle with that too. And, and I know it's crazy, like how could you not value Christ when you see everything that he did? You see everything that he did in chapter 2, where he had everything, he gave it up for you, he died on the cross for you, he rose again, he sits as king, and yet for some reason I don't value him as much as I should. So what do we do in that moment? What do you do if you're anything like me? Well, this is, this is the thing that struck me this week. Like, we're not accepted by what we do or say or think. We're accepted by faith in Christ, a helplessness at the foot of the cross. And even when we don't value Christ, the only place to turn is back to Christ. The only place to turn where I don't value Christ after everything that he's done for me is I run 
back to Christ because he still loves me and at the cross he paid for my sin, even my sin of not valuing him. And as we run to Christ over and over again, as we realize my faults, my shame, my sinfulness, my brokenness, as we run to Christ, we will begin to start valuing Christ more. And we can say with Paul, I want to know Christ. I know I don't know him as much as I should. I know I don't pursue him as much as I should. I don't hunt for that. I don't fight for that. I don't know him as much as I should, but I want to know Christ. And we run to Christ knowing that in Christ we're not accepted by what we do, we're accepted by faith in him. Knowing that in Christ we have a deep joy and knowing that when we are saved in Christ we actually get him. And so we run to Christ over and over and over again. So let's run to Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we come knowing that we are so sinful, that we look at the cross, we see everything that you ever did for us. We see the lengths that you went to, that you laid down your life for us, that you, you humbled yourself, you became a servant, you were obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see that, we hear that week in, week out, and yet we know that as we leave this place, as we go into our lives, that, that our lives aren't marked by Christ, that I don't value you as much as I should. But God, we are thankful that you don't accept us because of me, even when it comes to my valuing of Christ. You accept us because of faith in Christ. You accept us because of what Jesus did. And so we come helpless we run helpless to the foot of the cross and we ask for your forgiveness. And we praise you that you do forgive us, that you are faithful. And we ask that we would begin to value you more, not just as a historical figure, but as the living Lord Jesus who suffered and died for me. And so, Lord, we pray that this week and for the rest of our lives that, that these words would ring on our tongues, I want to know Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would know Christ until the day we see him face to face and we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.